You're listening to TIP. Uh, you know, I think the thing that's most important is knowing what you want and being persistent about it. And Start With Strategies really helps you know what you want. And I honestly, I find that so many people don't know what their financial goal is or don't actually have a specific goal or what they want their lifestyle to look like. And I know for some people that might feel like, oh, I'll get to that one day. But I truly believe that having a clear idea of what you're trying to accomplish is essential to accomplishing that goal. And so Start With Strategy allows you to figure out what you want and then then sort of like back into the right tactics, the right deals that will support that long-term vision. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down with Dave Meyer, who's the VP of Data and Analytics at Bigger Pockets and the author of the forthcoming book, Start With Strategy. We did a deep dive into Dave's book and discussed why picking the right strategy is key to your real estate investment success. You also learn how Dave got into financial independence, what the early days of Bigger Pockets were like, and also Dave's thoughts on where and what asset class he would be investing in given today's market conditions. Dave Meyer has spent his career working in the technology industry while also investing in real estate. In 2016, he took the opportunity to combine his professional passions for real estate and technology and join Bigger Pockets. Dave has been a rental property investor in Colorado since 2010 and invests passively nationwide. He's also the host of Bigger Pockets on the Market podcast, which started in 2022 and is growing rapidly as a one stop source for all things real estate analytics. Outside of work, he enjoys traveling, eating sandwiches, and being outside, and currently lives in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Be sure to head to biggerpockets.com strategybook to win a free copy and be the first to know when the pre-orders open. All pre-orders on Bigger Pockets will come with a free planner and other incredible free bonuses, so head to biggerpockets.com strategybook now so you don't miss out when pre-orders open. And so, without further delay, let's dive into this week's episode with Dave Meyer. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me on today's show is Dave Meyer from Bigger Pockets. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate it. I am happy to have you on here. I've been a big fan. I mentioned before we got started recording that I'd listened to one of your early, early interviews on Bigger Pockets. I think it was when there was like episode 150 or 60, something like that, early days. So I am happy to have you on. We're going to get into your book. But I wanted to hear a little bit about like moving to Amsterdam and this hamburger story that you've got about eating a 220-pound hamburger. So can we go into those stories a little bit before we dive into the meat of the book? <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Those are different stories. So the hamburger thing was when I was in college. I was actually just like walking through a park in Munich when I was doing a study abroad program. And I just happened to see people making the world's largest, I didn't know at the time, but it turned out they were going for a Guinness Book of World Record for the world's largest hamburger. It was 100 kilos. So for everyone in the US, it's 220 pound hamburger. It was about the size of like, you know, like a wedding table, one of those circles. It was like about the size of that. And I got to eat that and I was on German TV eating it. So that was one of my claims to fame. <laughs> 
That's awesome. 220 pounds with all the fixins and all of that, like bun. Yeah, it was not that good, to be honest. It was more of the novelty. I can't imagine. Good story. So did that, like studying abroad, did that get you into wanting to move to Amsterdam? I'm, I'm curious how you ended up in Amsterdam after living in New York and then in Denver also. Very much so. Yeah, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to study abroad. My junior year of college, I had almost finished my major at that point and could go and take some more elective courses and wound up going to Rome and was able to do some traveling and around it just really fell in love with the adventure of it and just not necessarily knowing everything and how things are going to go and some, this sort of element of calculated risk, but so much rich experiences. And so I actually wound up figuring out a way to go study abroad a second time. I went home, did an internship, made as much money as I could, and then went to Buenos Aires for half my senior year and just have always had the travel bug ever since. And my wife is the same way. And a couple of years ago, we probably almost yeah seven or eight years ago, we really set a goal to move abroad at some point, and we didn't know how that was going to happen. And then fortunately, my wife got transferred to Amsterdam for work. And so it just worked out for us, but we were eager for that opportunity. That's awesome. I had a similar experience, got to study in Luxembourg during college, and it does give you this like thirst for adventure and travel. And in many ways, it's, I don't know that it's, it changed my life quite a bit, you know, and it sends you on a trajectory that's maybe a little unusual that compared to your friends or family, things like that. So I wanted to hear a little bit about how your friends and family reacted to, to that move. Oh, it depends on who, but my family was thrilled about it. They all understand and sort of have the travel bug themselves. My sister lived in Mumbai and in India for a while. And my dad, you know, really loves travel as well. And so they were enthused about it. And you know, it's hard. We had a very nice life living in Denver and it's hard to pick up and move, but we felt that it was worth the option. But we felt that the, you know, the upside and the opportunity was worth any uh, risk or difficulties leaving a, a comfortable life. And so far, it's definitely has been. That's so great. I'm, I got to say, I'm a little jealous. So it's really cool that you're doing that. Well, it sounds like you have the travel bug as well. I do. I do. I'm married now with kids. And so like that kind of puts a little bit of a damper on big adventures. So, but uh, still try to do it as much as possible. Let's get into the book. But before we do that, I wanted to hear just like your origin story about just how you got interested in personal finance and real estate and investing, financial freedom. How did you get like first exposed to those concepts? So I think I always sort of had this idea that I wanted to be financially stable, mostly just from some childhood situations. My parents, both smart, hardworking people, but they got divorced when I was about 10 and our family went through a lot of ups and downs. It was just like finances were always a conversation and my parents talked to me about our financial situation and when I, you know, starting at probably 10 or 11 years old. So it was sort of always on my mind. And my dad, who, you know, smart guy, got laid off and was out of work for several years. And I sort of was just always looking at how volatile finances can be. And I had no idea what I wanted to do in college. I picked my major on a whim, but I have always just sort of had this inkling that I wanted to find something that was relatively stable or at least have some control over my financial situation through entrepreneurship. 
So you graduated in around what, 2009? So tough time to graduate, right? And your undergrad was in poli-sci? That's right. Political science. Yeah. Haven't used that at all. So did you, like as a high school kid, did you have, were you reading finance and investing books? Did you have side hustles, anything like that to get started early? Yeah, it's funny. Definitely not reading finance books. I wasn't reading textbooks or doing my homework either, but I have always been entrepreneurial. And so it's small stuff, you know, like what kids did. It wasn't doing anything that unique, but you know, I would walk around and shovel snow. I had a little bit of a dog walking business around my neighborhood in middle school. And where I grew up, most kids in high school didn't work, but I started working at, I think about 13 or 14 and I've been working ever since. I wanted to hear a little bit about Camp You Seen. So I wanted to hear about that. So that was an entrepreneurial venture. You were the founder of the company. Tell me a little bit about the idea, how it went, what was the impetus for it, and uh, just kind of go into that a little bit, if you would. Sure. So uh, in college, I was a tour guide. You know, by your senior year, you sort of work as basically glorified intern in the admissions department. And, you know, you help screen essays and do filing and stuff. And so I got exposed to college admissions and how painfully inefficient it is. And I learned that all about the college business model. And basically, they're just like any other business. They need customers, that's students, and they need people, they, they need to be able to forecast who's actually going to come. And college admissions is this very strange thing where it's like people apply and then they let in a certain amount, but they don't know of those people they let in, how many will actually attend. And so the original idea was to use analytics and some sort of like predictive modeling to try and predict that. And it was largely based off of interest, demonstrated interest. There's all this academic research that shows that the likelihood that someone's going to enroll and actually even succeed in, in a given school is more about their interest and proximity to where they live than academics. And so that was the impetus for the idea. And I started it when I was 23 or 24 with a friend of mine. And it did okay. You know, there's parts where we were profitable. Ultimately, it failed. I can go into why, but it was a very good learning experience. No, that's great. I love entrepreneurial ventures and that's the time to do it is right out of school, I think. So I was curious, when did you get into data analytics? Was that in undergrad or did that come later? Yeah. So in undergrad, the school I went to, you didn't do minors, you did these things called concentrations where you had to just do a little bit of in all these different areas. And so I did do some statistics courses and some basic computer science courses. And I, I really just liked it a lot. I'm one of those people who genuinely loves Microsoft Excel. Like I think it's the best software product ever created. And I got exposed to it there. And then I had some internships in college where I learned how to do some financial modeling, which I also, people think this is weird. I find that very enjoyable. And so it was sort of the right time, the right place where people were starting to build these predictive models. I didn't really know what I was doing, which is part of the reason the, the company failed. Like I knew that these predictive models worked and I had some idea of how to do it, but not well enough. So you then ended up at Bigger Pockets. You wanted to blend your interest in real estate with technology and software and things like that. Tell me about those early days at Bigger Pockets because you were there. I don't know how many people were there at that time, but it was somewhat early days. So talk to me about what it's been like being there and watching the growth. 
Yeah, yeah. So actually, well, part of that, the transition between these two things is I decided to learn a bit more about data and analytics. And so I went back and got a master's degree in it, moved away from poli sci, a <laughs> little more practical degree. And as such, you know, I had been investing in real estate at that point for about six years and decided to, yeah, like you said, merge these two interests I had. And BiggerPockets was luckily looking for a, what they call growth marketing person, which if you're unfamiliar with, is sort of using analytics to drive marketing performance. Some people call it growth hacking, where you sort of, yeah, just look for advantages within your marketing funnel that come from being a little bit more analytical. And so, BiggerPockets was looking for that. And uh, luckily, I got a job. At that point, I believe I was maybe the seventh or eighth employee. It was definitely under 10. And luckily, it was, you know, a half a mile from where I was there, a mile from my house. And uh, yeah, I was able to, to join the company at what was really an exciting time. If you're unfamiliar with BiggerPockets, it's actually been around since 2004. And so for about the first six or eight years, it was just our founder, Josh Dorkin, like by himself, sort of as this hobby. He wasn't even full-time all that. And then it really started to take off 2012, 2013. And by the time I joined in the beginning of 2006, it was really starting to gain some traction. And then, you know, the last eight years, it's really seen some explosive, exciting growth. It was funny. I was re-watching that episode that you were first on in 2016 or whatever it was with, it was Brandon and Josh doing the interview. And I think at one point they're like, what is your title exactly? Like they're both just kind of like, what, what is it you actually do here? It was kind of funny. Well, yeah, it, it, you know, if you've ever worked at a small company, you know that what you're hired for and then what you ultimately become responsible for are not always correlated. <laughs> and so that definitely happened at Bigger Pockets for many years. You know, everyone's just pitching in. It wasn't just me. Uh, you know, you do what you got to do to grow the company. And luckily now we've reached a point where people can focus on the things they have a specialty in. So let's get into your book, which is called Start With Strategy. I want to hear about the process of that. We talked about Robert Leonard, my co-host, who's done several podcasts, and he actually wrote a book. It's probably been six or eight months ago by now about house hacking, but it sounded like a brutal experience to me, like the actual writing process. So I wanted to hear about that for you this second time. I know you had a co-writer, Jay Scott, on the first one. Talk to me about the writing process of this second one and how the idea for the book came about. So the idea for the book came from a few different experiences. First and foremost, I think that in my experience, you know, investing for now 13 or so years and working at Bigger Pockets, I see a lot of people who are interested in real estate investing and just don't know how to get started. And to me, the core of the issue is that there are so many different ways to invest in real estate, whether it's flipping a house or buying a rental property or now short-term rentals are extremely popular. And there's not a lot of guides to help people pick their strategies. There's plenty of great information. If you know you want a house hack, for example, there's plenty of great tactical advice about how you should go about house hacking. But I found that there is not a resource for people to look at themselves and look at their own life and say, these are my personal values, this is my risk tolerance, these are the resources that I can bring to bear, and how do I go from where I am today and achieve whatever my financial goal is using real estate? And there's, there wasn't really a way to create that roadmap. 
And so that's where the idea came from. Now, writing it was very difficult. Uh, I agree with Robert that writing a book is really, I think, mentally the, the biggest challenge. You know, it's obviously a lot of hours, but the creative process is not something I'm super familiar with being a data analyst. And so having something that is so subjective is new for me and not having a right answer and having to sort through that and not having a co-author and really just relying on your own self to make decisions uh, about the right way to present information. It's challenging. It took me probably about two years of like very consistent writing to finish the book. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Now, was the idea for the book, was it Bigger Pockets encouraging you to do it? Or do you come, was it your idea and you presented it to them and said, hey, I'd like to, to do this strategy book? No, this one was my idea. I just had this idea. Again, I told you the impetus behind it. And then I found a couple examples from other industries that I found really interesting 
for a while in the you know campusing the the company I was talking about was in this whole sort of startup world and went through these accelerator programs where you get to meet all these interesting mentors and one of the frameworks that is used there is something called lean startup i'm not sure if you've ever heard of it but it's you know this agile methodology where you learn to create these business plans and sort of focus your resources in a good way. And then we also have this book, actually, I have it behind me called Traction. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Yeah, yeah. What's that guy's name? Um, uh, Gino Wickman. Gino, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so both of those books, I think, provide really good frameworks for people, whether it doesn't matter what kind of business you're trying to grow, but to create a framework that works for your individual situation, regardless of your goal. And so for traction, it's more of an operational plan for lean startups. It's for mostly geared towards early stage technology company. And I thought, why don't I apply this to real estate investing? Because Real estate investing is different from investing in the stock market. It is entrepreneurship. And you need to have a business plan similar to what you would do if you wanted to open a store or startup. But there are unique elements to real estate investing that are different. And so that's sort of where the idea came from was to blend those two, you know, this need for strategic planning in real estate and then creating sort of a model for people in a framework where they can apply their own personal situation to it. I remember Brandon Turner mentioned Traction years ago, and I think he was pretty pretty keen on the book. One of the ideas is is it like developing it? It's an EOS. Is that am I is that correct? Yes, that's right. The entrepreneurial operating system. So, do you get into any of that in the book itself? Like how to create your own? You know, it's real estate is not passive. I think we would both agree with that. And I just was curious. Like, there's what four sections of the book? I want to say correct. So we start off with the resource triangle. Yeah. So basically the book is split into to four parts. The beginning is fundamentals, like things that you need to know about real estate investing and also finance, certain things just about how to deploy capital effectively and efficiently over a long period of time. The second one is called the vision part, which is where you really define where you want to go. And you probably hear this all the time. It's super different for every kind of investor. Some people, you know, like me, want to build a modest portfolio that supports, you know, more free time and the ability to travel. Some people just want to buy one property to supplement their income. And some people want to become tycoons. There's sort of this huge spectrum out there. And so determining what types of deals you should be doing is highly dependent on where you want to go. And so that's sort of the first step in the personalization process is defining your vision. And that that's composed of a couple different elements there. Got it. So talk to me a little bit about the resource triangle. What do you mean by the resource triangle? Okay. So this is one of my favorite things that's in the book is that my belief is that every single real estate deal and as a byproduct, every real estate portfolio, because they're just amalgamation of individual deals, requires three resources that every deal needs. It's capital. You need money to be able to buy a property, to fix things up, to make sure everything is safe and make your repairs. You need time because as you just said, real estate is not passive. You need to operate your business. And there's certainly a spectrum of how time intensive a deal can be, but every deal needs some time. And the last is skill because even if you throw time at something, you actually need to know what you're doing a little bit. And the thing I love about real estate investing is that you need all three for every deal, but you individually don't need to have all three. If you have capital, you can buy someone else's time and you can buy someone else's skill. If you have time, you can 
contribute your time to a deal in exchange for someone else's capital or in exchange for someone else's skill. That's personally how I got started. Or if you have skill like being a contractor or a property manager or a real estate agent, you can trade that for capital or someone else's time to get yourself into a deal. And that's what's so great about real estate investing is that it's extremely flexible because it's entrepreneurship. Like you can structure it however you can really, almost any way that you can imagine. And so I start the book with the resource triangle because I want to encourage people who may not have enough money to make a down payment on a duplex. Most people don't, but that doesn't mean you can't necessarily get involved because you can combine and trade resources with other investors. That is extremely common. I would say, I don't know the stats, but in my experience, the majority of deals happen that way. And I also think it's fun to just go in and figure out how you're going to get the resources for an individual deal. So you mentioned your first deal a little bit. I wanted to hear a little bit about that. So you didn't have money. You know, you were a pretty young guy. You, I don't know if you had the knowledge, but you did have the time and energy for it. So talk to us about how, like what your first deal was like and how you went about finding the people with those other parts of the triangle that you were lacking. Yeah. So I was about a year out of college and I was waiting tables and I didn't have money for a down payment. The downside of graduating college in 2009 was the job market was terrible. The upside was that real estate was very cheap. And so, you know, it just made logical sense. You know, I had a little bit of information and knew enough about financial modeling to say the rents are way higher than what you're paying in a mortgage and what your expenses are going to be. Like, this makes sense. And so I'm fortunate that I knew people in my personal network from growing up and family and friends that had money. And so I was able to trade my time in exchange for capital because I brought in three partners. I can contribute any of the down payment. I had no money, but I did, you know, I was waiting tables. I had time. So I managed the property and I, I did a lot of repairs myself very poorly. I was awful at it, um, but I tried and, you know, I basically hustled my way into some of the equity and some salary for managing the property. And so, you know, it wasn't originally a very lucrative thing for me. Over time, luckily it became, but that was largely the product of market forces, just rapid appreciation. But that got me into the game and I learned a lot and I was able to make a positive step for my financial situation, even though I didn't own 100% of the deal or anything. And that gave me enough to sort of catch the bug and keep wanting to invest. When you were writing the book, did you have kind of an ideal reader in mind, like the kind of person that you thought this is who needs this book, this is who should you know read and learn from, you know, what I need to share? I wrote this book a little bit more for people who are on the less experienced end of the real estate investing spectrum. I think the need is greatest for people who know they want to be investing in real estate, who recognize the opportunity that comes with investing in real estate, but feel stuck or overwhelmed by the abundance of choice. And so that might be people who have zero deals. I think that's probably most people. But I think the other group is people who start to scale. After you have two or three deals, it can be confusing about what to do next. A lot of personalities in this industry start buying massive multifamily complexes and raising money from other investors. And I don't think that's the way most people want to go. And so 
I think the book offers a lot of different options and suggestions for how people can scale and achieve their financial goals without really going outside their comfort zone or without sacrificing their personal time. They're sort of extending beyond their risk tolerance or anything like that. I've got a couple of guys. One is my barber. Another guy is in the trades, does some uh, heating and cooling work for me. And they both want to get involved in real estate. And I've been talking to them for quite a while about real estate. Neither one of them have actually pulled the trigger. There's a lot of different ideas and things like that. But what do you think are like some of the things, the big things that just hold people back from making that first initial step? I think fear is the biggest one. You know, buying real estate, it's a capital intensive business. You know, you need to have money. As I said, you know, the concept of the resource triangle is that it doesn't need to be your money, but you do need to have money to get into real estate. This is not equity investing where you can start with $100. And so that I think is whether you have it or even if you have it, I should say, it's still a bit scary to put a lot of money into a single investment. And so that's probably the biggest thing that holds people up. But I think with a little bit of knowledge, you see that real estate is actually a relatively stable asset class. And this is the millennial podcast. And I've said many times in the past that I think millennials have this collective housing market trauma that sort of holds them back because we graduated into what was the worst real estate investing crash in the history of the country, at least as far back as I have data, which is about 100 years. And so we, I think a lot of people of, of my generation feel that's a normal occurrence. And you see that now with people always saying the last three, five years, the market's going to crash, the market's going to crash. It might. There, there is always that possibility. But if you look at historical precedent, it is not the most likely outcome. And so I think people see it sort of as the stock market were these big swings in valuation when in reality, it's not. And the other part of that is real estate investing, most people don't underwrite their deals or base their returns off of property values going up. It's much more about appreciation, paying off your loans, adding value to the property. And so I think when you understand this sort of holistic way that real estate can improve your financial position, it eliminates a lot of the fear. One part of the book, you talked about a resource audit, and I, I wanted to get into what a resource audit is and how that can help figuring out your vision and your goals for what you want to pursue in real estate. So like we said, of the resource triangles, you need these three things. And so one of the first steps in, in creating your own strategy for real estate is to take a look at what resources you have available to you. And so this isn't very difficult. One is just taking a look at how much time you have and how much time you're willing to commit to your portfolio. So I think this is the easiest one because people can usually reflect on their own time and how much money they spend in a given week or month doing certain things and how much free time they have. And if you have a lot of free time, that's going to open up a lot of different options for you as a real estate investor. You can do really time intensive things like flipping houses or renovations. On the other end of the spectrum, if you have five hours a week, there are still options for you. There are definitely ways to invest in real estate with five hours a week, but they're going to be fewer. So you need to figure out what kind of time you have. The second is the skill audit. 
If you are a contractor, like, you know, your friend who's in the trades, they're going to have way more options to that they can contribute to their portfolio because they can do some of the work that themselves or they, they might be very good at vetting other contractors to work. So you have to understand what skills you can contribute. And then lastly is a capital audit and understanding what money you can contribute. And there are some steps in the book that help you walk through this. But basically, you want to understand what your investable assets are, which is how much liquid assets do you have? And then put a responsible amount of money on the side as a cash reserve in case things go poorly, and then figure out what money you are comfortable putting into real estate by doing this, by understanding what time you can contribute, skills, and capital you can contribute. Then at that point, you can start to narrow down the different possibilities of real estate and pick the ones that are most aligned with your resources and your long-term vision. Looking back over your own real estate investing journey and career, was is there anything that stands out like that you wish you had known in the early days when you were first getting started that like, man, if I had known this, like it would have saved me a lot of time, money, energy, headache, heartache? So many things. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'll try and limit them. I think the first thing that I personally feel and I hear very commonly when I talk to other investors is knowing when to start outsourcing things. Uh, you know, you've, we've talked around my background working in startup and then my introduction to real estate was sort of as the hustle, you know, sort of the sweat equity. You get into this mode where you try and do everything yourself. And that actually not only is inefficient with your time resources, but it becomes inefficient with your capital resources. And you start to learn that it is more expensive in the long run to spend all of your time doing something that you can pay someone who's better at it to do. And you can focus on the things that you are actually good at, right? That's the whole basis of our economy is specialized in trade. And so I think you should take that into account when building a real estate portfolio. I don't know if you're familiar with Naval Ravikant, but he's got this idea where you set your hourly weight, what, what you're worth per hour. And he suggests setting it really high. Like, I think he says like a thousand dollars an hour or five hundred dollars an hour, whatever it is. But anything that is less than that that you are doing, he's like, outsource all of that. I totally agree. Yeah, I, I like that concept. And people think this is crazy because I'm a professional real estate media person, but I have a rule that I won't spend more than 10 hours a month on my portfolio. I just won't do it. I don't want it. I like real estate. It's a great thing. I like looking at deals. I don't want to manage my portfolio every day. I don't want to be talking about it every day. And so that's just a limit that I set for myself. That's the resources I am unwilling to contribute. That's changed over time. Like when I first started, I was putting tons and tons, I was doing 10 hours a week at least into these deals. And now as my life and my goals have changed, now I just reconfigure the resource triangle so that I am in a fortunate position where I have more capital and I have more skill that I can contribute to my portfolio and therefore I get to put less time into it. I want to hear a little bit about how your own strategy has changed over the years. Has that shifted or or changed year by year? And how often do you like reevaluate what you're doing? It's changed dramatically. And that, that's sort of one of the other main reasons for the book is, yeah, when I first started it, my idea of a good deal was just like anything. Could I get into it and did it cash flow a little bit? And like the strategy for me then was I had to be able to earn my equity through hustling or house hacking or something like this. Whereas now I live in Europe. And so I, I can't be doing any of the repairs myself or much of the property management myself. And so I've almost gone from one end of the spectrum, which was highly involved, highly active investing strategy to 
basically entirely passive, where since I've moved to Europe, I haven't bought a individual property. I've only invested in funds and what are known in real estate as syndications, which is basically pooling your money together with other investors to buy large deals. And I do intend to buy more direct properties actually in the next couple of years. That's part of my strategy for 2024. But it has really shifted from one end of the spectrum to the other. I wanted to hear, which do you prefer? Do you prefer more of the hands-off approach of investing in syndications or in as an LP? Or do you like more of the hands-on stuff, the nitty-gritty, the sweat equity, grinding? Do you have any preference one way or the other on that? I love the passive investing, I'll be honest with you. I love looking at deals, but... You know, it stresses me out, honestly, to like think about all the individual details. It's, it's honestly just not something I'm good at thinking about how to properly redo a, a property or planning out a renovation. That's not good for me. And so I like syndications because it allows me to focus on the things that I'm good at, the skills that I can contribute to my portfolio. I think I'm good at deal analysis. I think I'm good at location analysis and trying to f- identify places to buy. I think I'm good at vetting operators. like These are things that I'm good at. And so I prefer to put my time into them and then let the people who are genuinely good and passionate about property management or doing renovations do their thing. And I I do think for me, it will continue to be a combination of both, but I intend to lean more heavily into the passive investing avenue going forward. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. That's airbnb.com host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash MI. netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. That makes sense. Do you, you talked about analyzing markets, that you're good at that. What markets in the US do you find interesting and attractive right now? Well, that's a great question. And people ask me that quite a lot. And I think in the book, I try to be very clear that what markets are good markets is highly dependent on your vision and your strategy. Because if you want to be a flipper, you'll probably choose a different market than if you want to be a short-term rental investor or a buy and hold investor. There's also this sort of trade-off in real estate markets. Generally speaking, this is sort of a broad rule, but some markets are better historically for appreciation, whereas some markets historically deliver better cash flow. And so if you want appreciation, which generally there's this whole debate in real estate about this, I think it's kind of silly. Both are important. But appreciation, most people focus on when they're younger in their career, when they're continuing to work, that allows you to build up a lot of sort of this nest egg that you can invest later into your career. Some people prefer cash flow, but I personally believe that cash flow is more important later in life when you're approaching your retirement or you want to be financially independent, that's when cash flow matters. So again, what market you pick depends on where you fall along that spectrum. I will generally just say that if you're looking for cash flow, the Midwest is the best right now, as is a lot of actually New England is starting, particularly Western New York is, I guess New York's not New England technically, but the Northeast, let's say, is doing a little bit better. The Southeast, uh, it continues to be the fastest growing markets in, ter- in terms of appreciation. Uh, you see a lot of the fastest growing markets in Tennessee, in North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida. Although Florida, I always joke, it's like the most polarized. If I do these analyses of like best and worst markets, like Florida is always the best markets. It's also always the worst markets. So um, it's both ends of the spectrum. And then the West right now is in the biggest correction. So we are seeing property values decline in a lot of places. It really is sort of like a west east-west divide in the United States right now. Not necessarily on the Mississippi, but basically Colorado and West is performing the worst right now and the East is doing better. But I also want to caveat that by saying a lot of the cities in the West have the best long-term fundamentals, strongest population growth, economic diversity, economic growth. And so again, it really depends on your time horizon, like any investment. You know, If you're investing for next year, probably don't want to pick something in the West. If you're investing for 10 years from now, you might want to. So it's hard to say any one individual market, it really has to be aligned with your broader strategy. So you're in Europe right now. If you were to come back to the US, what market would you focus on and what asset class? So if I was to buy directly, I, I am looking at a couple places in the Midwest because just so we were talking about, a lot of the syndication and passive investing I do is focused on building equity because I am not someone who's going to 
personally take on large value add renovation projects. I like to invest passively with people who are good at that. I do want to balance out my portfolio with cash flow. And so I'm looking more in the Midwest, probably with small multifamily asset classes, which is two to four units, because uh, those have some financing advantages. I wanted to get into a little bit about your own, like how you've built your own personal wealth? Like what has been the best avenue? What's been the, let's say your best investment? There's a lot of younger people that listen. They're trying to figure out how can I build my wealth? What would you say for yourself has been the biggest factor for you know building your nest egg? I think this is boring to say, but going back to school and getting a degree, a master's degree in a high paying, highly secure field has been a huge difference maker for me in my financial journey. One, you know, having a high paying job is great, but it also allows me to take a bit more risk in my investing. So like I feel comfortable investing in real estate projects that are more focused on equity building and might be a little bit riskier because I have a stable income that I feel confident in. And I know a lot of people get into real estate investing to quit their job, and that is possible. But I really think a lot of that is sort of Instagram, you know, selling something where it's like, oh, you can quit your job in a couple of years. Maybe you can, and maybe you want to, but there's a trade-off with that. Quitting your job and focusing on investing alone is difficult and it's riskier. The longer you build multiple income streams, the better. And so maybe that's the right advice is have these multiple income streams. Like I continue to work. I continue to, I plan to continue working and that allows me to be a little bit more aggressive and honestly more long-term focused on my investing because I don't need to cash flow tomorrow. If my property value goes down next year, I don't really care all that much because I'm not going to sell it. And so it's really gives you that stability and, and strong foundation that you can use to invest from. I like that. That's really good advice. I wanted to get into habits and touch on that a little bit. I I wanted to hear what habit you personally wish that you had developed a little earlier in your career. I guess organizational skills and prioritization skills. I think it took me a long time to get good at learning how to like regularly look at all the things I have to do and focus on the ones that are really the most impactful and not necessarily the ones that are easiest or that I want to do the most or sound the most exciting. And I think I've gotten much better that at that over the course of my career and like keeping this list in my head of what the most important thing I can be doing is. And that's been very helpful to me. There's a book called The One Thing. And actually, Josh Dorkin, the founder of Bigger Pockets, gave me that book on my first day of work. Oh, really? And was it impactful? Did it? Did you read it and it made a big impact? It is. Yeah, it is. It's like, it sounds intuitive, but it's not as easy as it sounds. Like, even if you say like, oh, just do the most important thing. Everyone's like, yeah, of course. But, you know, it does take a little bit of learning to figure out like how to weigh different things against each other and sort of to do that prioritization process. I wanted to touch a little more on habits, but what do you think the the number one habit for new investors or anyone trying to build financial freedom needs to work on the most? Like what's the one thing that, you know, across the board you would say this would be super helpful to develop this habit? That's interesting. I'm not a big like habit person. I'm a very like I am a structured person, but I don't know if I have like a specific habit that I would recommend just other than 
honestly, it's just consistency. I don't know if that's a habit or if that's how you build a habit, but I think that's the difference I see in the people I know who are successful is just being consistent at the things they want to do. It reminds me, I think it's Woody Allen that said the quote, 80% of success is just showing up. So just, just keep at it. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked about some of my failures. I've had many more that I, we don't have time to, but I think just knowing what you want and trying to be persistent about it is really the most important. So how is this book that is coming out in January, how would you say it's different from your first book, which was Real Estate by the Numbers that you wrote with Jay Scott? What are the differences between the two? They're quite different. So the Real Estate by the Numbers, uh, the book I wrote with Jay Scott is really about the finance and the math that goes into real estate investing. It is not complicated, but it is different than the ratios and ways that you evaluate a stock, for example, is different than the way you evaluate a particular real estate deal. And I guess this isn't a habit, but if there's a skill that everyone could get good at, I really just think deal analysis is the most important. If you learn how to do the math and how to craft the right assumptions that go into the math. That is really just the key to being a real estate investor. If you learn to underwrite well, what happens sort of in the broader economy is less important, especially if you're a long-term investor, maybe not if you're a flipper. And so that's what real estate by the numbers is about, is really making it simple to understand like what you need to be tracking, what you need to be thinking about as you build your portfolio. Whereas that's sort of very very tactical, right? Like in the weeds, when you're buying a deal, here are the, the, the formulas you should be using, the things that you should be thinking about. Start with strategy is sort of on the other end of the spectrum where it's really, it's called start with strategy because I think it's where everyone should start their real estate investing career. Before you get into analyzing deals, before you start picking what kind of deals you want to, you really need to pick what you want. Actually, funnily enough, I just said that, uh, you know, I think the thing that's most important is knowing what you want and being persistent about it. And Start With Strategies really helps you know what you want. And I honestly, I find that so many people don't know what their financial goal is or don't actually have a specific goal or what they want their lifestyle to look like. And I know for some people that might feel like, oh, I'll get to that one day. But I truly believe that having a clear idea of what you're trying to accomplish is essential to accomplishing that goal. And so Start With Strategy allows you to figure out what you want and then, then sort of like back into the right tactics, the right deals that will support that long-term vision. Can you talk a little bit about some of the prep sections that are in the book along with the, the journal component that I think you've included? Talk about that and how it applies to both new and experienced investors. Yeah. So the prep is stands for the personalized real estate portfolio. And so in addition to start with strategy, which provides all the context and information, the prep is basically a, a business plan that comes with the book and you can fill out as you're reading it. And there's three components to it. The first is the vision, which we've talked about a bit in this interview. So you're setting where you want to go and why you're really getting into investing in the first place. The second part is what I call deal design, which is then taking that vision and combining the right elements of real estate investing into deals that work specifically for you. So that might be choosing between flipping and rentals, that might be choosing between active or passive management, might be choosing what market you're going to invest in, what property class, and sort of, you know, taking all the different ingredients, if you will, that are available to real estate investors and combining them into your own unique combination that's going to work for your vision. So that's the second one. The third part of the prep is portfolio management. And this is where 
things get really tactical. So you start with your vision, you get sort of set this high level vision, then you design your deals that you're going to pursue. And then portfolio management is sort of the day-to-day stuff. Figuring out, are you going to refinance your property this year? Should you invest $20,000 to add another bedroom onto this house? Will that improve your portfolio? Will that help get you closer to your goals? It also is where you sort of define your investment thesis. You asked me earlier, I think I skirted that question. Sorry about how often I evaluate my own strategy. And I recommend doing that once per year. And so this sort of this prep is this format that you can follow to evaluate and craft your own personal real estate strategy that's based on your own financial situation, your own personal situation, and help you get towards your goals. So that's what the prep is. And then there's also a journal um, that comes with the book. If you actually pre-order it before January 30th, that actually comes free, which is awesome. Normally it's 30 bucks. So you can get that for free if you pre-order it. And it's basically a workbook to work through a lot of these questions because you know it's easy to say, hey, Tell me what you value most in life and why you're investing. You know, some people like my, I definitely need like some space to think through and brainstorm about what you're actually trying to accomplish. And so the journal has some questions and exercises that you can go through to help craft your strategy. Is there any other interesting, cool bonus content like that with the book? There's actually a lot. We're giving away a lot. So the other thing that comes with the book for everyone is what I call the strategy toolkit. And uh, these are Excel. This is all coming full circle, Patrick. I was gushing about how much I love Excel earlier. But it's an Excel workbook. It's got about 10 different tools that can help you plan your strategy. So there's a financial planner, which helps you take your income, measure out all your expenses, figure out how much money you can contribute to your portfolio, you know, using your standard rate of returns or the type of deals you want to do, extrapolate how long it will take you to achieve financial freedom. There's things to help you with the resource audit that we talked about, like time budgeting and skill auditing. And so there's all sorts of different tools. Basically, my goal was to come up with a comprehensive way to get people into real estate investing in a way that feels comfortable for them and their personal situation. And so I just kept going. I wrote a book, then I wrote a journal, then I made a whole Excel thing and you get it all if you order the book. That's great. And it was a two-year process that you said from start to finish and produced by Bigger Pockets, I presume. It is, but Bigger Pockets has its own publishing department and it is publishing the book. I think I had mentioned I had a couple authors on Ashley Kerr and Pace Morby who both had written books and uh, had the chance to interview them. I think I got them both right here. They're good books. Yeah. You got them back there? Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Every, bigger pockets, they do a great job really covering everything if you're interested in real estate investing, especially tactically. You know, I said earlier, I, I wrote this book because I think it's people need help getting started and knowing what strategies and, and tactics to pursue. If you know what tactics you want to pursue, Bigger Pockets is a great book for pretty much anything you can imagine that can teach you the nuts and bolts of like how to actually execute on those strategies. Because my book doesn't really get into the, you know, the day-to-day operations. They're really nicely produced books. They do a fantastic job on like the actual the books just look and feel great. So before we wrap up, I wanted to talk a little bit about your podcast on the market. There was an episode recently that you had the Zillow's chief economist, or he was talking about how people do not want rates to come down. I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Like that seems a little counterintuitive. I've talked to a lot of people that are like, I'm waiting to buy, you know, rates will come down. Maybe eventually that's when I'll buy. Tell me what his thought process was behind saying, no, you don't want rates to come down. 
So yeah, we had uh, Zillow's chief economist, I, I'm forgetting his last name, his name is Orfe is his first name, um, was on and we were talking about rates. And I think there's a couple of things going on with interest rates. They're very high, obviously. It's really slowing down the market in terms of home sales volume, but prices are staying stable. And I think there's basically two camps of people. Some people believe that mortgage rates should stay high and hopefully can put continuous downward pressure on property prices until the point where prices fall and in improve affordability. There are other people who perhaps are waiting, wanting to buy a home or an investment and can't afford it in current rates. And so they want to see rates fall and the, or people who just have their nest egg and are planning to sell obviously don't want prices to go down. So I think there's really no right answer. I think it depends on sort of where you fall. I can give you my opinion if you're curious about it, but I think there is no real right answer. There was another episode too about just we're at all-time levels of consumer debt that, that came out recently on the podcast. Tell me what that means in your on your take for housing in general. I went deep into this one. I, I just went on a, a whole tangent in my life looking into this because I kept reading about how consumer debt was getting out of control and it's the highest it's ever been. And the short answer is yes, consumer debt is the highest it's ever been. But something like 80% of that is mortgage debt. And so if you have a lot of mortgage debt in an asset that has been appreciating, you usually have a lot of equity with it too. And since property prices have gone up so much, it is natural that consumer debt has also gone up with property prices. Now, if you strip that out to look at the health of US consumers, I like to look at credit card debt because mortgage debt, I think many would argue is quote unquote good debt because it helps you finance in many cases an appreciating asset. Credit card debt, not the same thing. Very high mortgage interest rates. It is not helping you typically buy an investment. Sometimes it can, but just generally speaking. So that just recently topped $1 trillion, and that is much higher than it's ever been. And so that I was like, oh man, that's concerning. Until I went a level deeper and looked at two metrics. One is the percentage of disposable income that is going towards debt. So that's basically what percentage of people's income goes to paying off debt, whether it's car loans, student debt, credit cards, and it's actually down, which is pretty wild. So even though debt is way higher, incomes have also grown. And so you see that it's not down a lot, but it's down modestly. And so you see that even though debt has gone up as a function of people's lives, it hasn't actually changed. Now that might change in the next couple of months, but that's just where we are today. The second thing that's getting really nerdy about it is if you look at debt as a percentage of monetary supply, it's actually about flat. And so everyone talks about inflation and how money printing has made things more expensive. Money printing also devalues your debt. And so even though you have a trillion dollars in debt, a trillion dollars is not what it was in 2019. And so you have to, if you're going to discount the dollar in terms of spending power, you also need to discount it in terms of debt. Again, you, you look at that, you see that it actually is largely unchanged over the last decade or so. And I'm not saying all of this to say that huge amounts of consumer debt is a good thing. I think in the long term, it's a dangerous thing. I just don't think it's an acute issue that just like popped up over the last six to 12 months. It has been an issue for decades and the level of that issue or the severity of that issue hasn't really changed that much. It's just still an issue. I want to be cognizant of your time, Dave. I really appreciate having you on the show today. Start with strategy. I'm looking forward to, to getting a copy of it. Is there anything that you that we didn't touch on that you wanted to cover today or do you feel like we discussed the book pretty well? 
No, this is great. I hope everyone gets the point of the book. If you're interested in getting into real estate and want to figure out how to make it work for you, I hope this book would uh, be useful to you. But you asked a lot of good questions, Patrick. So I think they everyone should hopefully get the gist. Thanks, Dave. So for anybody that wants to buy the book or just learn more about you, what are the best ways for them to get in touch or purchase the book? Yeah. So you can go to biggerpockets.com slash strategy book. You can get the book there and you can see all the bonus content and all the other stuff that comes with it. Or if you have any questions for me directly, Instagram is the best place where I am at the data deli. The data deli. Love it. Dave, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Patrick. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.